Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to our co-host, Mr. Steve Cameron. How's it going, Steve? It is going fantastic. Glad to be back. Episode four. We haven't got kicked off the internet yet, which is a real (laughs) surprise, but uh, there are some haters out there. We got one, one, we got one, one star rating (laughs) on uh, Twitter. Yeah. Should we, should we ask for, for positive ratings? Uh, You know what? Listen, keep it honest. Keep it real. Keep it true to yourself. If you like what you're hearing, Give us a, give us some feedback. Uh, if you want to give us a one star, just don't do it anonymously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyways, this episode is brought to you by Cameron Stevens Mortgage Capital, a leading non-bank lender based out of Toronto, Ontario, with offices in British Columbia and Alberta. Cameron Stevens focuses on mid-market development deals, specializing in land, development, construction, term, and bridge financing. CSMC currently has $1.5 billion of assets under management made up of institutional and private capital. If you are interested in information on how to invest, contact Mr. Steve Cameron here at askcameron at cameronstevens.com. Cameron at cameronstevens.com or on Twitter at, at the one CBC. Happy to uh, to take your messages on there. I was uh, mentioning to Ben, I'm up to, I think, what, 13 or 14 followers now? Beautiful. What an accomplishment, eh? Beautiful. I think you I can are... get verified at 14 <laughs> followers. <laughs> uh, they're going to give you a red X, not a, <laughs> not a blue check. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you, you had a guest. I do. We have uh, we another have guest. guest. We have a guest. Not you have a guest. Yeah. We have a guest. It is, uh, it is uh, an exciting time for uh, us Tuck hosts to uh, to introduce our next uh, guest, second official guest to the uh, podcast. This gentleman was born and raised in Paisley, Scotland, which is about 15 to 20 kilometers outside of Glasgow or about 5,300 kilometers outside of Toronto. Mr. Stuart Wilson, also referred to as Stu in the industry, studied for a Bachelor of Science in quantity surveying and a master's degree in construction management specializing in project management at Glasgow University. His first job out of university was in 1997 in heavy construction sector in Hong Kong, followed by a move to Toronto in 99, which he didn't know at the time would be his last and final move with no return to Scotland. He took a job with Hellier Cost Consulting that saw him sink a bit before he swam but where he had the opportunity to work with the brightest and best in the industry. Hellier merged with Altus in, 19, uh, in 2005, and by 2016, Stu was key member of the senior management team responsible for 130 staff members and oversaw over 500 projects completed or under construction in his tenure. But like all great things, his time did come to an end there in 2017, I believe, when he accepted the position of Chief Operating Officer of Altera Developments. In the three years since, he has forged changes and growth immeasurably that no one had expected. They have restructured the operation, probably doubled the number of staff, and have four sites actively under construction made up of about 700 units. With five more in the pipe and 1,500 suites coming in over the next few years, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure and honor to introduce none other than Mr. Stuart 
Wilson. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, How did I do? I think you did a great job. I appreciate you doing all that research. It's almost as if I wrote it myself this morning. <laughs> you know, I was actually up late, really digging into your LinkedIn there, and I uh, appreciate you on having the dark a good profile. Yeah, yeah. So tell tell us just a bit about. Obviously, born and raised in Scotland. Like, what was that like when you were growing up? Did you have any idea that you'd ever end up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, or is this uh, no idea? This not, is fate. Was not in the plans. Still, is not in my plans. But, <laughs> but we're twenty years in. So, yeah, it's funny. You know, if you think about where I come from in Scotland, you know, there's my my parents still live in the same house that I was born in, and you know, there are there are sheep and cows at the top of our street. So, you so know, Paisley is at a it's Paisley, right? Paisley's a yeah. town. We it's live a in a small outside. village. What would that outside. equivalent to what in Toronto's terms, Oshawa or further out? <laughs> uh, they're, they're very different makeups, but yeah, probably similar size, except with a, a lot less subdivisions, I think. Okay. You know, it doesn't change as much. Scotland's a very static population. So, yeah, so so I went to university in Glasgow, which is obviously a bit more dense than uh, the village I grew up in. What would be the population of Glasgow? I think it's probably the best part of a million. Okay. Uh, maybe 800,000. Wow. I mean, Scotland in general only has 5 million. So, you know, after five years at university there, they got the opportunity to go to Hong Kong. And, you know, people always talk about Hong Kong with the term culture shock. You before, know, so before we go to Hong Kong, i got to ask you one question. The majority of cost consultants in Toronto are from, is it Scotland or Scotland the UK in general? or Ireland. Or Ireland. So explain that. Everybody asks me all the time, and I have a pretty good answer, but I think your answer is going to be a lot better. So tell us so about that. So my interpretation is pretty simple. So if, if you go back to the days of Hellier, um, the partners of Hellier were Scottish and Irish. So as a result of that, to get quantity surveyors, which don't exist in Toronto, there's no school for them, they would simply go back to the universities that they studied in to, to hire the, the same type of people. And, and why is there no school for cost consultant in Toronto? I guess it's just not a discipline that's, that's yet established. I mean, I know Ryerson has some programs that, that have some type of estimating component, but no quantity surveyors as such. So again, on a supply and demand basis, it's great for those of us that are here because we're not pumping out hundreds and hundreds of quantity surveyors every month, which is great. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I always thought that the answer was uh, there's a fantastic school in Ireland, there's a fantastic school in Scotland, and it's almost a breeding ground for, for the quantity surveyors across North America. I, I think there is a bit of that. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's I think, Australia, England produces a lot of phenomenal quantity surveyors. But the fact is the, the original source of the quantity surveyors coming into this country were probably through the Hellier partners. And those partners went out um, and expanded the, the business of quantity surveyors. And so a lot of the Irish senior quantity surveyors and Scottish senior, senior quantity surveyors are still hiring from where they came from. Interesting. Okay, sorry. So, uh, so I digress. So, uh, graduated from university, somehow ended up with a job offer in Hong Kong. Tell us about that. That was incredible. You know, you're a you're a young lad, and you're heading off. And how uh, old have you been? I was 23. Wow. So moved six thousand miles. Have thought you were crazy. Well, we did have a family connection there, which is part of the reason I wanted to go. My parents had uh, friends there, but headed out, didn't know anyone. And uh, yeah, it was incredible. You know, we, we went from, you know, a very low rise in Glasgow, maybe sort of six to 10 stories to everywhere around you is 60, 70, 80, 100 stories and just pinpoint nothing like Toronto. It seems to be no planning. As long as you've got a postage stamp of land, like the... Go for it. You know, if you've got a house, you can put 100 stories on it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's a great place to be. You know, I, I had I learned 
I'd say almost nothing while I was there. We 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 partied pretty hard for three years, and uh, yeah. hard to believe. But uh. you know, got to got got to Toronto. You know, came here had a job offer. That they always say you've got a shelf life in Hong Kong because there's only so much you can you can go where you're only sleeping sort of four and a half five hours. It said, it said a night. that you were doing uh, heavy machinery, a lot of underground digging and tunneling. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I was I, definitely I too, I was too, I too junior to really understand what was going on. You know, the projects were too massive, and I had like a tiny little piece of them. I'm not the mastermind you see before you today. <laughs> so you know, I picked up a couple of tricks, but you know, I think coming to Toronto and coming to Hellier, it was very fast-paced. Did environment. they find you, or uh, they again through the network? Uh, one of a close friend of mine, uh, David Somerville, who you know was working here already, and uh, we were chatting. So they asked me to come over and save the economy, which I was happy to do. Thank you. We owe so, you. Yeah. So 2005, no that was really just before the big condo boom happened in our in our market it was kind of just well i was here in 99 19 which year 99 just in 2005 is when altus and hellier merged oh okay 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 so you're you're just just coming out of the recession then oh it was perfect timing i mean you know i've known you guys for a long time but you know from the day i arrived here to today it's just been go time i mean i know we took a coffee and um, the recession in what 2007 2008 Eight. for five minutes mm-hmm. and then we just kept on trucking mm-hmm. everyone there was a there was a bunch of rumbling at that point that the market was going to fall off and things were going to end but obviously you were able to save that for us so thank you <laughs> you know i can't i can't take all the responsibility you know you and ben did a great job <laughs> mostly ben but you know it's it's when i first came here and this is an interesting analogy is that you know people were very excited who lived here about how how much of a big city Toronto was. And people would say to me, it's the New York of the North. And you know, it really wasn't. Coming from Hong Kong, it was remarkable how quiet this place was. You know, it just, it's nothing like it was today. And I think what we've accomplished as a city in 20 years is genuinely amazing. And it's still not the New York of the North. It's but only, it's closer it's and we're getting there. But we just don't have to be the New York of the North. We, oh, are, true. we are our own entity. And, you know, I think the Raptors are kind of almost a symbol of that somehow in that whole journey where... Toronto is a very cool city in its own. You know, it's, it's got its own distinct neighbourhoods. Uh, there's so many, so much more nightlife than there used to be, and just so much, so many more people on the streets. It's phenomenal. Uh, and I, and I, I mean, listen, Ben, Ben is a baseball guy. I'm a hockey guy. Historically, we both like sports, but I always love to use the, the sports analogies. But the the Vince Carter effect. I don't know if you guys have seen that on. I think it's on Netflix. Have you seen it, Ben? Yeah, I don't know if I watched it. I was. You didn't? Okay. Yeah, I mean, but he, it talks. He quit but, on the team, so I'm <laughs> not a Vince Carter fan. For, forget anymore. that. But the premise of and it, and I'm just only bringing this up because you use the Raptors analogy, sort of defining a bit of the north or the northern character. The the Vince sanity effect was you know Toronto. He came to Toronto. It was a bit of a sleepy town. It was probably in and around the same time. There wasn't much going on here, and he really. Had a, I don't know. He had this energy about him that, and he wanted to do things to make it a great city. And one of the small examples they use is we have bottle service now all over Toronto. People, you know, you go to a club and you can order a bottle of vodka for four hundred and seventy-five bucks. You know, <laughs> and he, we never had that. It was a Miami thing. That was something that he picked up either in Vegas or Miami, and he brought that here. He started a nightclub here. He sort of made this place somewhere that all the players wanted to come during the summer for Caravan. He made it. Anyways, he just kind of added like a bit of uh, pizzazz. Now, this isn't a, a commercial for, for the movie, but if you haven't seen it, it's worth watching because it talks sort of in line with your saying, like the Raptors, you know, it's this city is cool. And and even on our last episode, uh, I forget the word that Matt Slutsky used, but we have, um, he was talking about we have 
nothing. Uh, no, we, the hype. He said nothing. Uh, Toronto. No one can hype like Toronto. Remember how he was making yeah, that well, point in terms of in terms of marketing and marketing projects, right? Like he says, no other no other city. You know, obviously, because they track every single new development in the U.S. and Canada, right? So no one's doing the type of marketing and hype that we're doing for for new condo projects. So, yeah, yeah. So. Anyways, let's get let's get back to, to back to Stu. So what 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 projects were you working on when you first started here in Toronto? Can you remember? Gosh. Can't even remember. That's Probably, a good the, you know, the first, um, the first really prominent one that I remember working on was Water Park City with Lantera back in the day. That was probably okay. 2001. And that's young in Lakeshore. Yeah, you know, and at the time it was, I think there was some, a tw- certainly a 28-story tower, a 22. There was maybe something with a three in front of it. And it, it was just so exciting as a young guy. And I remember, you know, meeting the principals of Lantera and and you know thinking they're going to find me out any minute that I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm a fraud. But they, they just kept asking me more questions and I, I kept making up answers that they seemed to like and off we went, you know. So my career at, at Teller and Altus was extremely exciting as I entered into a world that I knew nothing about, uh, you know, as an immigrant and um, I was accepted very well. And uh, I think as my knowledge base grew, my client's success was growing at the same time and it was it was really great time. You know, I had a great time as a cost consultant and, uh, you know, it, it's put me in good stead to move forward as a developer. So, so tell us about that. That's a, that's a big move, right? I mean, you have a fantastic career there. You have 150 people reporting to you. You're on the senior executive team. You're a staple in the city for every major developer who has questions. I, I know a lot of them who said they wouldn't do work unless you looked at the budget. So obviously you had a, had a good career there, but uh, you wanted something more or was it just more action or you just want to try something different and why did you pick I'm sure there's a lot of developers who would have loved to have you on their team you know how to, thousand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why Altera how did tell us how that uh, how that move came to be and the decision making process behind that a little bit of color there if you don't mind well it's a good question I, you know I, I think these things just Sometimes they just happen. There's not always a plan. But, you know, having having given advice on cost consulting for, you know, the best part of 20 years, you know, when you're in your early 40s, is, is the question you have to ask yourself, is this what I want to do for the next 20 years? And, you know, I think you, you figure out that you only have one life and sometimes you want to learn a little bit more. So, you know, I think I that was the key. My learning had probably slowed down a little bit. And, you know, I was ready to actually just, you know, Try Get, be a bit new. scared. So, you know, R- Rob and Richard Cooper have been clients of mine for, for over a decade. You know, there was a huge amount of respect, certainly uh, as I looked to them. And, you know, I'd always admired the way they handled themselves in business. I liked the platform. You know, I knew enough of the staff to know how smart they were. Um, I thought Altera was, you know, probably an underbranded platform. You know, I think the... They're not a loud, shouty developer. And, you know, they, they didn't even do a lot of signage at the projects they were doing. So in terms of an opportunity to take a brand um, that was underselling itself, I thought it was a great opportunity to be part of that team to, you know, make it a lot bigger and a lot uh, bolder than it was. And so far, it's been great. You know, I think we've made great strides in the last three years. I, I certainly can't take... Um, even a majority of the credit. Oh, you know, come I think on. We're, we're part of a team. <laughs> Picking now to be you modest. Know, <laughs> the whole team at Altair really are terrific. And um, they've taught me a lot more than I've taught them. You know, you have to bear in mind, I didn't know anything about development going in. But they're a full service team. They all have incredible skills and a lot of knowledge. And, uh, 
with Rob and Richard um, guiding me along the way, it's been it's been amazing. So we're you know we're buying sites, we're pretty active downtown. We took some potential investors on a tour recently, and it was. You know, it's amazing when you're actually passing seven or eight sites that, you, that you've got under control. And, you know, I think we we may have as many sites as, as anyone else downtown. Oh. They're maybe not the biggest sites, but we, we have, uh, I think, nine sites right now. Nine sites. Four, really? four under I, construction. I was, I was looking online in terms of some of them. So there's... Uh, and 321 Davenport, Corktown Condos, Wonder Condos, Network Lofts, 159 Southwest Condominiums. I don't know if that's still yep. on the go. Wellesley and Sherborne. Yeah, Westwood Condos, 36 Hazleton, Rush Condos, Post House Condominiums. I know that's completed and done, so yep. that's nine, but is that, did I miss any? Uh, I think we're doing the Ace Hotel. Correct. Uh, we Which have another great. Which site we're all excited for in Toronto. Down in Fieldway, and uh, we're just in the process of tying up another great deal. We also have a, a partnership with um, Diamond Corp at 125 George. Which is sort of uh, Jarvis and Richmond area. Okay. So south yeah. of uh, it's just Adelaide? near the Goodwill. Yeah, it's the the old Goodwill drop off center. Okay, it is. The, yeah, is yeah. that site. Okay. So okay. yeah, we've got a lot on. It's, wow. uh, it's never never a quiet day. I remember another developer had that tied up at one point in time. Had to drop it. Yeah, the Goodwill side. Uh, yeah. So like like everything in our business, there's a story behind the story. Uh, yeah. Do you want to tell yeah. the story there or no? no? <laughs> Not today. <laughs> and we'll be doing another podcast with Stu so, Wilson in 12 months. Yeah. So you and Margaret Atwood, you good? We're homeboys. <laughs> We're cool. <laughs> you know, tell us the extent of that because I am very curious. And maybe well, give some I background know. for those listening who may not know. Well, interesting enough, I uh, I cannot talk about it for legal reasons. But uh, yeah, suffice to say, we have a huge amount. But anyways, of moving on. Yeah. So just tell well, us, just tell us about that development. What is the site? What is that? You have a luxury project. Uh, the site is three twenty one Davenport. We okay. have a uh, very high end luxury project. So we're following on from the thirty six Hazelton project that we did uh, probably five years ago. We completed that. Um, we have some great experience in the luxury side. So we have a really nice site just on the, the curve between yep. Avenue Road and DuPont. On the south side, so you're across from the Peter Freed's site beside the gas yeah, station. A little, little Is that bit, yep. The right landmarks? So just looking, beautiful view over the annex. So we're, we're going to be uh, launching that very shortly. It's kind of had a, a bit of a soft opening. So, yeah, it's uh, Can we ask great what the to soft be involved opening in was uh, launched at? Or are those public numbers yet? Um, I, off the top of my head, I mean, they're they're certainly at where you'd expect for luxury numbers. I think they're maybe in the 1900s. Okay. But it's Good a phenomenal you. product. It's a great location. You know, I think we're going to do very well. Sounds like I need some financing pretty soon. That's great. <laughs> you always, always doing business. I knew there was a reason I was here. Um, oh, we got some great money. I don't know if you heard the intro. Uh, yeah, anyway. yeah, I mean, I guess maybe I had a bunch of con uh, uh, questions on the on the on the construction side of things, but maybe before we jump jump into that, is there any more? You know, talk a little bit. If you wanted to talk a little bit more about what you guys have on the go and 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 your thoughts on, I guess, I guess the market in general. I'm always you know want to talk about the the <laughs> the condo market and and a developer's thoughts on on where it's going. Well, you might you might need to lead me in that direction, but uh, yeah, we've got you know I, well, I think I'll, Steve Steve's been through uh, most of the projects. Um, talk to us about Wonder Condos. I'm very curious about that. I think it's one of the coolest developments. I think it's in an up and coming neighborhood. I love the East Side, Lower East Side, Eastern Avenue. It was uh, gentrifying every hour, I think. So talk to us a bit about that, what you're doing there. I believe you're sold out because I went, uh, had a conversation with one of uh, your partners 
uh, guys there to see if there's any inventory left. I think the answer is no. I believe that is not correct. I think there are units left. Really? Um, yep. There, I think. Hold it out on me. I, I don't <laughs> know. I, I think, I think there's, there. there's maybe 30 or 40 units left. It's Greywood, right? Uh, you guys yeah. partnered with there? Yeah, fabulous partner, Greywood. Um, so we're partners with Greywood. We are doing the construction. We have, uh, I believe it's uh, maybe a two acre site. It's the Old Western Bakery uh, down at um, Eastern and Booth in Logan. And so we have a heritage component. So we're going to have 28 um, sort of loft style projects on Eastern. And then behind that, there's another 260 that will be, you know, more typical condos. It's eight stories. But you're right, Leslieville is, I think, one of the huge success stories of the city. You know, when I came here, you know, I hadn't even heard of Leslieville for probably the first eight years. And then, (laughs) you know, friends of mine were living down there. You could probably get a semi there for $250,000 at one point. You know, those same semis are probably $1.5 million right now. I bought my first house in Leslieville as a semi. Did you pay Summer, 250000 Somewhere between that and what it's worth now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, so, gonna go, I'm, I'm going on uh, Terranet. I'm going to find out what I want to pay. If you look at Queen Street in Leslieville, I think it's probably the coolest stretch in Toronto. Like probably, you know, from an adult perspective, no, it's not a kid's party place. But right. in terms of restaurants and bars, it's great. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an inconvenience for the neighbours right now. Obviously, we are under construction and just in the ground. But, you know, that, that neighbourhood needs a bit more in the way of population, you know. So we're probably going to have, you know, 400 plus people living there at the end. And it, it's going to be a landmark building. You know, it's mid-rise. It's tough to do mid-rise well. Um, but right now we're on schedule, on budget and trucking along. It's a, it's a big site. How far are you downtown. from Streetcars Project, which is bordering the DVP South of Queen, north of Eastern, you're close because they're going to have probably 800 units or probably more. Maybe, so that's going to be between two projects. And a half that's going to be some serious density, a lot of population. That'll be good for the neighborhood, in my opinion. Anyways, I know people not like to hear that, but I'm sure you know these are some key projects in the area that are going to help. 100%. You know, and I think f- for me as a developer, you know, I see all the, po- I, see, I always see the positives. You know, I see the illumination on the street. I see the street traffic, which to me equals safety. Um, and, you know, all these businesses, they do need traffic. You know, the bars, the restaurants, the shoppers, drug marts, the convenience stores, they, they need people in them. And the only way to, to bring those neighborhoods up, not that there was anything wrong with Leslieville before we arrived, but it just adds that little bit more in the way of oomph to a neighborhood that uh, has, has a lot to offer. Yeah, that always bothers me when people say, oh, well, these are all these condos. I'm like, well, you wouldn't have the street life. You wouldn't have the restaurants. You wouldn't have the activity that you have on the street if there wasn't people living in those neighborhoods. Yeah, need, <laughs> it always yeah. like, shocks me. Where do you think these people are coming from? You, you want everyone for, to drive into Vaughan to, yeah, to, to go to the restaurants on Queen Street? Successful, right. long-standing, you know, good restaurant. You have to have people to go to it, believe it or not, right? Yeah. And it's interesting how the retail is, has changed. Will that project have any any retail component to it? Yeah, we have uh, you know, a large retail space on the ground floor. I think it's uh, maybe twelve or 13,000 square feet. So, again, I'm not 100% sure what's going to go in there. It's going to be three years from now. But, you know, our, our goal, like every developer, is to give back to the neighbourhood. You know, and, and obviously we're, we're running a business, but you, you want to give something that's complimentary and is actually required by the neighbours. So, you know, it's not going to be a car dealership or anything like that. So hopefully it'll be something that will be useful to the, the neighbours. Yeah, I did, we just did the financing on the ground floor retail right up the street from that uh, on Queen and just want to say 
is it Logan or Carlaw? Anyway, with the Trinity, they had so they bought the ground floor retail off of uh, the Harhe development there. Yeah, so eight, eight I mean, seven five Queen, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking, yeah. So we did that. It was a it was an exciting deal for us, sort of a bridge play while the tenants move in and stabilize themselves. And obviously, long term, they'll get taken out by a term lender. But that was a good deal for us, and it kind of shows a lot of action and traction and stuff going on there. But it's funny, I was actually on Queen Street on the weekend walking. Um, looking for uh for something and i walked by the domino's pizza which is closer to jones and i remember on twitter when domino's pizza moved into the neighborhood and took out it was one of the sort of like a mom and pop retailer there was just an uproar of fury like domino's pizza destroying our neighborhood yeah, yeah. yeah i walked by and i was like i could really go for some of those breadsticks right now <laughs> and that, that same person that's complaining is in there every friday night oh yeah, yeah. well yeah. i mean that's that's the interesting part is 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 People worry that new development will gentrify a neighborhood, but I think this stuff was happening without the new condos going in there, right? So, but you know, one thing I've learned doing this job is, you know, I, I have the the fortunate job of, of meeting the neighbors and, and dealing with them. And, you know, I, I do have a great deal of empathy and sympathy for what they're going through. I mean, they've they've had their neighborhood how they wanted it for X number of years. And suddenly somebody's going to move in and put what they think is a monstrosity next to them. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of disruption. There's going to be a lot of noise. There's going to be a lot more parking on the street for construction vehicles and more traffic. I understand all that. And, and I really do sympathize. So, you know, when we meet the neighbors, we do try and see it from their perspective. And, you know, oftentimes it will come down to compromises that suit them and, you know, we can live with. So it's not just a case of showing up and saying, hey, this is going to be good for you. So take it or leave it. You know, it, there has to be something to, to give back and there has to be some middle ground to find with these neighbors because, they, you know, they they pay their taxes. They they have their peace and quiet and they deserve to to enjoy what they have uninterrupted. So I get it. It's not straightforward. You know, we have another condo coming up. We're going to be launching probably this May. We have 379 units coming in Corktown at uh, 18 to 32 Eastern. And, uh, you know, Cork, I love Corktown. It's great. Phenomenal streets. You know, you've got uh, Enoch Turner Schoolhouse, that neighborhood. And, you know, Trinity Street, Sackville, Gilead. But, you know, I've been into a lot of these uh, coffee shops and bars and restaurants along that strip. And, you know, there's only one thing they need. And it's people. More people. <laughs> People, they're quiet. You know, yeah. I, like, I shouldn't be in there at six o'clock at night being the only guy having a drink. There should be people in there. And, you know, these, these guys running these businesses, you know, I, they're not jumping up and down signing petitions to have us build. But, you know, they, they have to be excited about, you know, another 500 people potentially knocking on their door. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, it was a good transition where you're talking about, you know, um, appeasing the the locals but i don't want to get you in trouble about this but i wanted to, to look at it from a construction perspective there's been a lot of talk about lane closures in the city of toronto and, and developers closing a lane for for construction i was just curious your thoughts on if it does get passed and they don't allow lane closures what do you think that's going to do for construction costs and and, and do for you know your budget and, and how you are you going to look at sites different? Is that going to impact your crane swings and how you deliver uh, um, things to the site? Uh, you know, I, I haven't re I haven't really looked into any detail, but I don't know how it can be done. I mean, one of the things I did hear was that um, there was a suggestion that if we want to build, we should use our site as part of our site um, for the staging points for the vehicles that we need to use, but. Um, you guys know the sites that we're looking at in Toronto right now. I mean, they're small. I mean, often they're less than 10,000 square feet. There's simply no way to put 
um, you know, a lane on the actual construction site for those trucks. So my opinion is you, there is no workaround. I mean, those, those trucks have to stop somewhere. Um, unless you're going to drastically alter the architecture of the buildings and the engineering, it, I, I don't know how it's going to happen. So my opinion is if you, if that's what's going to happen, we are going to grind to a halt. There will be zero supply or a very limited supply, certainly in the city of Toronto. And, you know, all we're going to see is further escalation in cost because demand continues to rise and mm. there'll be no more supply. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, construction. I want to throw you a little bit of a, a little bit of a softball. Uh, 2018. Actually, construction as you guys costs, know, Ben only so- throws softball. <laughs> <laughs> construction costs went up massively. Maybe you can maybe fill us in why why that happened and and kind of the the factors that uh, that led to that kind of big increase. Well, um, interestingly enough, Ben, you are probably better served to know the factors. You know, I'm just the guy on the receiving end of those bids. <laughs> But, you know, the fact is we remain in a ridiculously strong market. You know, we're still seeing echoes from the the huge amount of sales in 2017. And the fact of the matter is every trade is having uh, their door knocked on a daily basis for new quotes and bids and supply and demand. You know, when a lot of people are asking for your services, you're going to charge a little bit more. Yeah, it's unfortunate. We've talked about supply and demand a lot on this show already and leading into this episode, I don't know how in depth we need to get into it but it's crazy to me that the simple economic <laughs> formula doesn't register in whether it's residents whether it's local councillors whether it's senior politicians whatever it is you know like this well, is the I'll, supply I'll, demand thing. yeah let me let me tell you a quick the, little the, story this is the ben meyer special <laughs> yeah so i did a i did a twitter thread the the other day where where because there's a few people that said you know well we're we're building more than we ever have before right and they i said wait 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 wait. Let, let's hold up let's actually look at the numbers right so last year in the toronto cma or census metropolitan area we had Twenty-seven thousand completions, right? That's that's low rise and and high rise. That was you know one of the lowest totals in uh, uh, over the last twenty years. Um, but yes, the last few years have been decent. The last five years, I think it's something like thirty-seven thousand. But that's you know less than we built in like the early two thousands, which was like forty thousand units because we were you know we were sprawling. We were right. we were greenfielding right. developments out the yin yang, and and people weren't driving in those areas, so they just weren't seeing the 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 amount of of, of low supply. Rise. The low rise residential subdivision stuff. Exactly. I mean, I said, but the problem with evaluating housing on a, a unit basis is a unit is not very comparable across time because a unit of housing can be a 275 square foot studio with no balcony or it can be a 8,000 square foot, you know, single detached house on a two acre lot with a friggin' pool in the backyard, right? So it's not, it's not comparable. Not comparable. So you got to look at other measures like how many bedrooms there are and how many, you know, square footages there is. So, so he's one, not an economist, folks. So, so once I started looking at those numbers, we're actually building, you know, 30% less housing on a square footage basis and 25% less bedrooms than we were 15 years ago, right? Really? Wow. And so I put together this well thought out, uh, well researched Twitter thread and and someone points it out to one of the counselors and he's like, no, we built 70,000 units last year. It just makes up a number. And then people like, 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 and it's just, you, there's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter that what numbers you throw at people or, or what, 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 uh, how much research you put into it. People fundamentally believe one thing and then <laughs> that's all they're, they're going to, that's all they're going to so believe. So you're saying but, there's things on the internet that aren't true? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's, 
Would you call that fake uh, yeah, news? Or there's what? definitely some some fake news out there. But anyways, but I mean, how do we combat that? I mean, uh, we've talked about this. I mean, there's a narrative that is just negative, and if a counselor says seventy thousand, everyone's going to believe the counselor, yeah. right? I mean, I, I point to the link. I said the CMHC. You can get this information for free. You can download it. Here's a portal. You can chop it up any way you want, and here it is. Right? I mean, where's the accountability <laughs> to that counselor who said that? Yeah, I mean, I think the real stat no, is there. There is seventy thousand under construction, but yeah. they all take. Three, years. To, three to four years. Yeah, and that and that's the and that's the other thing that people look back and say, hey, look how many was under construction, you know, twenty five years ago. I'm like, yeah, but now we're building eighty five story towers, and before we were building twenty five story yeah, towers or thing, fifteen story towers. Thing so people guess what? Ne- it takes longer to build an eighty five story tower than it does a fifteen story. It's tower. It's not even that. So, I mean, if you look at a low rise residential subdivision, you're only building. Uh, first of all, you're only building, generally speaking, pre-sold units. So you have a block of 10, you sell the 10, you build the 10, and the people move in as you start building the next 10. That's how it works. If you do townhouses and there's blocks of eight, and they say there's 10 blocks of eight in a subdivision, you need to sell at least six or seven of the eight to build to get financing to build the eight. You build the eight, basically you're about finished. They can take occupancy. Once they can take occupancy, you've probably sold the next date and you start on the next date. Yeah. It's a way different concept when you have 475 units going up, all the occupancies are on the same day, well, for the same month, call it. And, uh, and then the registration and closing takes place on the same day. It's not comparable. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately that's uh but actually it reminded me another question I wanted to ask you is, is Altera did a lot of suburban condo projects in the past in you know, in the Hamilton area, um, Brampton. Do you think you'll get back into that? And what are your thoughts on the, the suburban condo market? I would say not in the foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, I mean, our office is downtown. Most of our staff are used to working downtown. The demand is downtown. I think the suburban condo was something that um, Altera transitioned. They were a low-rise builder, transitioned to mid-rise suburban, and uh, now we're firmly downtown. But, you know, we we understand the market, we understand the players, and, you know, we think there's a very healthy demand here. So as long as we can continue to find developable sites, we will be downtown. But the reality is you only have to look at the numbers. I mean, we were at the, the Altus Forum last week. Um, I think there's a huge demand in Vaughan. Mississauga has a huge demand. You know, I think there's only so many sites downtown. So at some point we will have to start moving, you know, east, north and west. But for today and probably the foreseeable future, we do want to be downtown. Yeah. Are you guys uh, intimidated by the prices of downtown land? Does it scare you where they're going? I know that there's, a you know, from I guess I always have my finance hat on, my credit hat. You know, they're getting over 200 bucks plus plus a foot for unzoned land. How do you guys feel about that? You know, it, it doesn't really fill me with emotion one way or the other. It's really a case of it's just a numeric calculation. So as a dollar value, I mean, it's pretty startling. You know, when you're when you're looking at paying nine figures for land, it's pretty scary. Um, I think the biggest thing is how how do you guarantee those loans? How do you find partners that have the, the appetite and pockets that want to partner you? But... You know, ultimately, one thing we do very well, and you know, I, I can take some credit for that, is the you know the pro forma side of things, understanding how you build a cash flow that takes into account escalation over the period. So, you know, we recently had a, a very nice piece of land tied up that we we're very excited about. It uh, has not worked out the way we'd hoped, but you know, it had a very 
very large price tag on it and it didn't scare us at all. You know, it's just, it, it's part of doing business in the city. And if you want to play in the city moving forward, there's no $5 million pieces of land left. Um, they're all probably, what's the smallest? 25, 30, 40 million for, for a good development site. So, you know, I think we're going to see a slimming out of, of the players. There's going to be down to probably half the amount that we have today in five years' time because the price or the barrier to entry is now quite high. So, so extraordinarily high. You mentioned uh, partnerships as well, and you mentioned a partnership with uh, Diamond Corp that you don't want to necessarily get into the details of today, but do you, do you see the future of development going down the road of, of multiple JVs in a group to try and get something done? You know, you mentioned... Nine ten figures for uh, for a piece of land. It's got to be a group coming together to put that kind of cash in the deal to get it tied up and closed and built. Or are you guys trying to do it yourself? You know, I think we look at each deal as a standalone. Um, if if the partners make sense, and you're also it's almost like a little mini marriage. You're going to be together for seven eight years. Yeah, so. that's very true. Uh, buyer beware you do not want to be getting uh, into that type of relationship with people that you really don't think you can live with so you know we're very fortunate the partnerships we have are are fabulous like we we really enjoy the personalities of the people and it should be that way we respect their skill sets and you know ultimately people have to write checks as well so for us we're aware of what we offer to the market you know we're, we're always looking for new pieces of land new relationships but we would also caution our partners, you know, they need to get to know us and they need to be comfortable that we're, you know, straight up with the deals. And, you know, Rob and I joke constantly that we're not smart enough to to be duplicitous. You know, some people are out there telling lies left, right and centre and trying to figure out how they're going to work around their partners. We just don't have the energy for that. So we uh, we call it the way we see it and we report the way that we see it because it's just easier in the long run. It's in awesome. a typical... Uh, Partnership, are you guys tip, are you guys going? I guess you guys would bring in a a more uh, a finance slash equity group, and you guys perform the construction. Is that typically how it works when you guys are working with a partner, or exactly, yeah. yeah, your expertise would lie? I think obviously now marketing and sales. Well, construction. We're, we're full service, so we'll, we'll take it through the development approvals. I mean, obviously, some of our partners also have those skill sets. So when you're getting into a relationship with people that have similar skill sets, you know, day one, you're sitting down saying, OK, you're good at this, so you do that. We're both good at this, but you're doing that, so we'll take this part right. on. Right. Um, it's division of labor is, is key, and it's, it's very difficult sometimes not to jump in and say, oh, well, maybe you should do it this way, because really that's how you agreed the relationship would go. But, you know, in a, in a perfect world, we're going to be having, you know, multi-billionaires showing up with a, a need for a full service development partner and, and we'll take it on we got Ben right here so yeah yeah. Okay, ben, I'll say take, no more I'll take a 10 figure check right now and we'll, we'll go to work yeah, it's you know I, I guess my question on, on, on the partner side of things do you feel that you're taking some risk off the table by you know taking a partner and, and, and having you know I guess taking advantage of their expertise as well you know you know I think two, two sets of eyes are better than one and you know if I look at something and I think it's a home run all day long. Yeah, I mean, 95% of me believes that to be the case, but that's why we have consultants. And when we have experienced partners, experienced partners at the table, you know, it's good for them to look at it with a completely separate uh, pro forma, completely separate bunch of consultants and come back and go, yeah, this is a good deal. And when that gives you the comfort to, to move on, it doesn't de-risk it, but it, it certainly makes you sleep at, at night a lot better because 
you know, the partners that we have, we've mentioned Greywood and Diamond Corp. I mean, they, they really know what they're doing and, and we trust them. So um, there will be problems along the way. There's problems, you know, every week, every month, every, every day. day. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think development, a lot of it is just problem solving. Yeah. And also, you know, not, you can't get in a flap every time something goes wrong, you know. You have to sit and go, okay, here's here's where we are. Here's where we need to be. How do we get, How do we get there? Yeah. How long is it going to take? Do we need to write a check? Do we need to call the city? Do we need to call our lawyer? Cost consultant? Do we call Steve Cameron? Do we phone Ben Myers? Like, the, no, every, everything has call a solution. Steve. Good idea. Great idea. <laughs> That's so yeah, it's all it's all just problem solving. But yeah. you know, trust and respect is is the key for any good relationship and development. Yeah. Ben, I, I know you wanted to to talk a bit about costing, and uh, so I'll let you to run with that. But I just I thought maybe we could even run through uh, a couple scenarios and a couple different trades, and and just maybe you could touch on where you think they're going and and why. I think it's important to understand you know what trades are up, why they're in such high demand, where the costing is going. For example, I know forming has probably doubled in the last three years, four years. You know, steel and rebar, I think, is up exponentially. I don't know, Ben, if you want to sort of elaborate on just sort of costs and where and where we're going in terms of uh, you know, what that means for the industry and, and maybe some of your fears even behind that. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of I, you know, obviously I get a lot of questions on Twitter and a lot of questions from, from, from people that are like not in the industry about why things don't happen. Right. And that's why, I mean, I, that's why I like to, what do you mean, why don't things I mean, don't like, happen? Like, I, th- I think one of the questions that I get asked a lot is the difference between why do developers need to do high rise? Right. And right. I think, why can't everyone do four, four, and, four stories along and Queen always, West? And there will always be people that say, <laughs> you know, we, we like mid rise development, but you know, the cost of construction is 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 lower for high rise, and there's you know each additional each marginal floor is is less. But you know maybe I will will throw the ball to you, and maybe you can comment on you know construction costs and land costs for mid rise versus versus high rise. Uh, you know it's it's a complex question. I'll try and give you an answer for as quickly as I can. I mean, ultimately, it's to do with how much you're building versus how much you're selling. So if you take a typical high-rise um, f- floor plate, it's probably about 8,000 square foot, you know, probably 85% of that is saleable. Um, on mid-rise, you're still building those slabs, but if some of them are terraced, then you still have to pay for those the concrete for that terrace, but you're not necessarily selling it. You're not getting the full unit price. You might add on a premium for a terrace, but you, you, you still have to waterproof it. You still have to put some type of landscaping on it. Uh, something we went through recently is the mechanical jogs. So if you have a stack on one part of the, say, the north or northerly point of your, your condo, the mechanical stack has to keep twisting all the way up like a Z. So for each bend in the mechanical, there's a price. You can't just run a straight pipe. So mechanical, uh, sorry, uh, mid-rise does have a lot of costs associated with it and a lot of inefficiencies that you don't have in high-rise. And, you know, trades... I believe see high rise is more profitable. So they will also increase the price because there's just, it takes longer to build the same amount in mid rise because, you know, there's so many jogs and bends and ins and outs. Um, but that's why high rise, it, it's a better, faster product. You can certainly deliver it to market very quickly. You know, you're, you're throwing window wall on top of window wall on top of window wall. So it moves very quickly. But, you know, people want to live in mid rise. But, you know, unfortunately, with the price of land, sometimes, you know, you need. 40 stories, not 12. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was just running the numbers for my latest land report that I do with uh, Batori Management. And I, so what I do is I take every piece of land and I look at what I think it could sell for and then, and then generate what I call like a land to revenue ratio. So, so for high rise site, developers are paying in and around like 13%, 14% as land in relation to the, to, to the end selling price of the unit. So um, for mid rise, it's, it's almost at 20%. So people are almost paying 20, 20% of the end selling price for land for mid rise and then add on top of that that it's more expensive to to build it you can see how you know developers want to continue to to do high-rise developments in, instead of mid-rise developments. Yeah, so. no, it's uh, it's interesting. When you look at a capital stack, it's made up of basically your land costs, your hard costs, your soft costs, financing costs, probably contingency, and then uh, you know maybe and a couple of the variables. But as I've watched over the last five to ten years, the percentage of the total budget that land is taking up in that capital stack is going up and up and up and up and it's you know it's getting to a point where when you look at new york numbers is 50 percent of the total cost of the project is land sometimes more wow. and what, what's happening there is there's Sorry, a lot I, of i'd appreciate it if you don't give the, the, the listeners <laughs> yeah. any ideas anyone that's anyone yeah. sending on a great piece of land <laughs> no what they're doing there now is they're actually so the so the land owner will put their go back to partnerships so they do a jv or they'll do a 99 year land lease so instead of actually buying the land for 650 bucks a foot, buildable, um, they'll put the land in at a lower cost, do the lease, and then they just start clipping a rate for the next 99 years, essentially. And that obviously adds a huge layer of complexity going back to having partners. It doesn't make it easy, but it makes it affordable or more affordable to build, right? So I don't know. Is, is that where we're going here? I hate to admit it, but I think there is that possibility. I mean, you know, what, what, if you if you don't, one of the things that's interesting to me about meeting landowners here is they don't necessarily need the money. It's another. You know, which I, is, I would it, love to dive into this. She's all for me because I need the money. So to me, I'm like, yeah, sell. <laughs> but you know, they don't necessarily need the money, and they, they, you have to unlock what their what their desires are and what what they actually need. So, but if you think about it, if you're if you're dealing with a guy that's already you know quite wealthy, doesn't really need cash. Um, a lot of them are thinking future generations. So, you know, if you can tie up a 99-year lease and then your great-great-great-grandchildren can unlock that lease again in 100 years. That's a legacy. Why, why not? Yeah. That's a good question. I, I mean, it's a good point. I think there's two there's two parts of it. One, there's a lot of landowners who think that they're developers just because they own a good piece of land. But Every, then there's a, Everybody knows everything. Everyone knows everything. <laughs> and everyone thinks their land is the best piece in Toronto. And everyone thinks that their price is worth the same as the guy next door, which is ludicrous. But I also think it's a bit daunting if you're, uh, you know, maybe at the end of your career and you have a, uh, a retail play or you have a small mechanic shop or you have, you know, something where you've run your business for the last 35 years and all of a sudden your land is worth $25 million and you're 75 years old. I mean... Sure. Yeah. Everyone wants 25 million bucks, but that is a daunt. That, that's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of work. What do you do the, with the money? What do you do with your time after you get out of your business? What do you do with the jet skis? <laughs> Buy a jet, jet ski. ski. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so you're five year olds on jet skis. Yeah, so that's, 30, that's maybe 30,000 of your 25 million. But I mean, seriously, what do you do with the rest? And, and they've never that's been challenge. in the money management business. They're not in the investment business. So, I mean, I, I'm sure you run into it. And I've even seen it with some, some of the guys come to me saying, I'm trying to buy this land. But, you know, here are the variables, and it's complicated. It's not so simple. Because that, that as you've pointed out, that 75-year-old is not necessarily going to benefit from having $25 million in the bank. 
He has no idea what to do still, with it. Still shops at Goodwill. He's still the same driving, house he's had still for driving a fourteen-year-old car. <laughs> you know, yeah, he might. You know, maybe he'll get it resprayed, but he probably won't even buy a new car. <laughs> and that's what I'm talking about. The motivation to plugs, sell. Maybe. Yeah. The motivation to sell isn't always there. Yeah. No matter what the number is. Plus, if you go back historically, when he was getting offered uh, money last year and the year before, he was getting offered a million less each year before. So. You know, intuitively, he can just sit on it for another two years and it'll be worth another two million. Yeah, and and that's the the, the what I you know people talk about it all the time. Well, you know, the city has increased the development charges. The city, you know, costs have gone up, but that's not a bigger problem because developers can just pay less for land. You know, that's the economic, you know, way an economist might look so at it, simple. right? And I said, yeah, that might work, but a lot of these landowners have owned these land for, for 30 years and there are no rush to sell the units, you know? And, and there's an emotional sell, attachment sell their because yeah. their, their father or grandfather built something on it and it's been the family land legacy and probably the family income for years. So yeah, understanding people's motivation is a big one. And what I've realized is that, that buying land is not a wham bam, thank you ma'am transaction. It's a, it can be a very long-term play where you're making you're making relationships and you're trying to build trust and you know trying to bring them in or trying to figure out what, what they're trying to get for their families out of it. That's we just did a deal with one of... Uh, I'll say in, a, in an up-and-coming uh, city east of the GTA, uh, towards London, and uh, the buyer was dealing with a, some farmer vendors, and talk about emotional attachment to your land. Like, you're third or fourth generation potato farmer, and you have got to a point where you probably have no succession and you have to sell the land, and you have every single developer in southern Ontario banging at your door. And you have to cut a deal with them. I mean, it is, it's, it's not easy. It's tough. Like I just watching these developers and how sensitive the topic is. And, you know, he said, you know how many times I've had tea at her dining room table? <laughs> Seriously though. And he's like, this isn't, you can't just walk in there. And like you said, wham, bam, thank you, man. It's not like that. It's uh it's an exhaustive process. It took yeah. him probably eight years to get the deal done. Of course. Cause they're, they're looking out their window. They're seeing a, a tree that, you know, they, they planted as when they were a child kids. and now it's a, now it's a big tree and their kids have you put a swing in it. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot to it. Maybe not so much downtown. There's not a lot of apple trees left, but no, it, it's, it's a real process and it's not just about the price. There's more to it. So you have to be a lot more creative and you have to be patient because you cannot, you can't force people to give you something that they don't want to give. Even if you're offering to pay top dollar plus, plus, plus. It's not all about that. So, you know, often it's a lot easier when you're dealing with one business entity transaction to another because, you know, they are motivated to make money in some shape or form and report on a yearly basis. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot to it. When and you bought the Wonder site, did you buy it off of, uh, who owned it when you bought it? Uh, it was the Western Group. It was, it was the Western uh, Group. And it was before my time. Was but, it okay? Um, again, you, you know, was that one, I assume would, that, would a transaction like that be likely easier, more straightforward than... I, I believe it was, because yeah. one business divesting its assets and... One so you and Galen broke bread together? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> That's bad, sorry. <laughs> Get my pen. I'm going to write that one down. <laughs> so throw a pen at me. <laughs> anyway, they killed the conversation. <laughs> Uh, my terrible joke just threw everything off. Stu, I'm sure there's a lot of dying <laughs> questions that you have for us. <laughs> that, uh, well, none that would kill the conversation quite as bad. Yeah, okay, I got, I got a question. We'll just sort of uh, uh, change topics for a bit. But in 2018, um, you joined the board of directors of condo.ca, which you say is a 
Toronto-based brokerage firm with a strong online customer tool, uh, technology-based group. Give me uh, some information about what you do there. I did a terrible work job at explaining it, but <laughs> tell us about, about that well, and what I, you're doing with them and, and how that's going. So I'm, I was asked to join the board of directors, which I, I did, and you know they're they're friends of mine. They have a phenomenal business, so they have sort of 200 plus brokers working. You know, obviously condos.ca primarily in the uh, condo market. So they created this phenomenal tool, and for those of you that haven't been at condos.ca, I would encourage you to go there. So if you're looking to buy a condo, they have mapped out every single condo in the city in terms of. Uh, square footage and they know what the price per square foot is and if you compare that to MLS anyone that's been on MLS trying to buy a condo it will say between 500 and 1,000 square foot you very know, for, frustrating for something that is commodity based you, it, it's the least helpful it can no, ever the worst be. is when you get between 0 and 500 square feet <laughs> <laughs> how do I do this count per the, foot the other problem is is the realtor will put in not they'll put in the combined uh, balcony and, the balcony, and, then, right, and then say, right. okay, it's 700 square feet, right? And then you look at the the the, the range that they put in, zero to five ninety nine. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what's yeah. going on? Here? Yeah, I do. I always love love going to condos.ca because they, yeah, you can just see the price per square foot over the last twelve months, and it gives you a good idea. Because I'm always, you know, trying to value certain neighborhoods for my clients and trying to understand, uh, you know, what the the current price for a new condos is. So I'm always I'm always taking the resale value and adding about a hundred dollars per right. billable square foot or one hundred fifty dollars per billable square foot, and and uh, and trying to determine uh, what I think the, the new condo prices are but so, who, uh, so who's the is, is you said it's friends of yours who run the site so a company that does full-time is it primarily just trying to give accurate information in terms of size of condos no or no no so they, so they are a brokerage so it's a tool that if it you is, were okay. if you were in the business for buying a condo you would you know if you search search toronto condos i mean they'll come up fairly quickly but you you log on and you know you're you're presented with all this real information on how much is this a square foot versus the one next door and they've got pins. It, it's very intuitive. And if you're just looking for the cheapest price per square foot, it gives you... There's no way you could find that on MLS. So uh, once you log in, you know, have the opportunity to be connected with some great brokers. And it's a, it's a really phenomenal business. The guys are very, very smart. They really understand the condo market, but they're constantly building tools. They have a team of developers that are constantly trying to make the experience better. As I say, they've mapped every single Toronto condo uh, per square foot, which no one else has done. But what's my role? So, you know, once a month we meet as board of directors and I'm like the Luddite in the room. I know nothing about technology. Because the right? they're all talking about technology, this and, you know, Google that. And I don't know anything about it. So I'm just, you know, applying my sort of simpleton view of the world. And I think, you know, some, sometimes I feel like the old guy in the room, but it's, it's really a great dynamic. I've enjoyed um, learning about how someone else runs their business and, for once getting to criticize as opposed to being the one that is criticizing. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. I guess you must use it. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously I'm, you know, I do a lot of you know, valuations, but I'm, I'm curious how, from your perspective, when you're underwriting a site or your team's underwriting a site, how much consideration do you give to what's happening in the resale market in that specific neighborhood? I mean, I think you have to, you have to, but it's really not the true consideration. The true consideration is how do, how is the new condo down the street doing? What are your brokers telling you? Uh, because as we've known for a long time, condos or new build condos are a futures commodity. That's how it's seen. And, you know, I think it's proven year after year that if you, if you buy a condo in pre-construction, it has gone up in value um, considerably by the time you take it. So... 
Yeah, we, we, we do look at uh, resale condos, but it's not our true comparison. But you, you have to be careful. If, if the particular area you're looking in is below market, then you have to ask why. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's 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 often questions from the housing bears out there, like why would you buy a condo for a thousand dollars per square foot when the resale building next door is eight hundred dollars a square foot? And, so and your you, answer is, and my, my answer always is, is, you're buying a condo market future. You're putting fifteen or twenty percent down for the right to buy this unit in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four, and so you're you're essentially betting on what the value of of that unit will be at that time. And also, you're obviously you're buying a new unit. You can customize it. You can pick the yeah, the the, the finishes, the, features, the, finishes, floors, uh, the colors, tiles, the, the, the windows, and you you've got a um, you've got a uh, you know warranty and 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 all that fun stuff, and, and essentially you're you're taking advantage of appreciation in the market when you don't have a mortgage and you don't have a tenant and you don't have uh, insurance and you don't have interest rate risk and you have all these uh, all these additional things that could happen when you're actually an owner of real estate as opposed to someone who's just speculating owns a, owns you, you also have four years to, to build your down payment to build your earning capacity so you know it has you have the opportunity to enter the market um, in a sort of gradual way. Yeah, well, that's a good point on on the end user side the, of people that are buying, or maybe even investors that, hey, I've got this money now, but I know in four years from now I'm making making more money, so I'm you know I, I I'm more inclined to buy something with a long closing, knowing that you know give me some additional time to to save up and 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 be a landlord at that time, right? So that's an interesting perspective. Tell us a bit about uh, just curious. You're building some high end luxury product. Obviously, your your standard retail stock is is. I don't want to call it cookie cutter, but it, it's similar to a lot of the the big projects going on, with lots of units in them. But you build a smaller project, bigger units, more I'd say probably on the on the mid rise size than the than the high end uh, or, or high scale uh, tower stuff. But obviously your buyer profile there is much different. Probably some downsizer, probably some uh, empty nesters moving out of their seven million dollar home and moving into a four million dollar condo. It must be an interesting transaction, one which which must be much different than the than your average transaction on a seven hundred and fifty one bed plus den. Hundred percent, and I think that's that's the difference. The word transaction is you know when you when you're dealing with commodities, which condos are. I mean, it's a housing commodity. Um, you know, you open for sales in a perfect world. You open for sales in a standard condo, and you know, three to six months later, you've got your seventy percent pre sales and. It's great. The we because we've done thirty six Hazleton before, we do understand it. How many units was thirty six Hazleton? I believe it was nineteen, and I think we have. I think we have nineteen again. So nineteen, and how many? Maybe it was how many gross square feet? Do you know that off the top of your head? I think it's about four, forty five thousand square feet. Okay, over nine stories. Wow. So, you know, you're basically selling. So two units you know, of floor. 19 penthouses. Yeah. Um, you know, everything is the best of the best, sound insulation. People really are, are looking at it with, with incredibly smart questions about their living experience in the future. And again, you, you're dealing with emotional attachments to family homes where they've raised kids. If you're downsizing, um, you know, they're, they're wondering about, you know, where their kids are going to park, you know, where they're going to walk the dog. It's, it, they're not coming in and signing up day one. You know, they're going to kick the tires for quite a while because this is the new family home. It's going to be where they have Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. 
And, you know, they need to know they've got enough entertaining space. They want enough guest bedrooms for grandkids. Even if the grandkids, you know, maybe stay over once a year, they still want that second and third bedroom. They they want to know that their neighbours have the same socioeconomic capacity as they do. So there's a lot to it and there's a lot of handholding. And when I see our marketing team dealing with it, it you know, it, it's such a skill because we have become desensitised to the actual skill of selling to real end users mm-hmm. in the city. And it, you know it takes a long time. That's great. That's, a, it's, that's a great. It's uh, a great point. Yeah, I was interesting that the, on the construction side of things. How much do how much of the finishes make up of like the overall cost? Is is it is it you know is the luxury market good because you know obviously if you're building a very large unit, you're doing less front doors and less kitchens and less interior walls and 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 some of those things. But then obviously you're offsetting that by putting in this really high level of spec. I'm just, I'm always curious about that in terms of, you know, the costs and how, how that would, you know, change unless if you're doing a, you know, a 2100 square foot unit versus a whole bunch of 350 square foot units, right? So, uh, you know, to answer that question, realistically, that you probably have to move away from the luxury and just get into, you know, a more standard cookie cutter condo because then you, you're comparing apples to apples. Um I think you've kind of summarized it quite nicely. If you if you take uh, three suites in the space of where you typically have one suite, then there's more kitchens, there's more appliances, there's more bathrooms, uh, there's more demising walls, there's more interior uh, doors, there's more trim carpentry. Um, so there are offsets, but I think you're you're probably adding. I don't know. You're, I mean, you're maybe adding. 50 to 100 dollars a square foot if you demised one condo into three or four um appliances is a big one i mean obviously if you had a bigger suite you're gonna have a bigger kitchen yeah but it's also the install time the architect's time the development charges obviously you have to pay for on a per unit basis um so it's probably 50 to 100 dollars just on the hard costs and then you know a two bedroom right now i think development charges are about 47000 one bed is 33 so if you're combining three units into one then it's 100000 versus 47000 mm. that's you know that's kind of i don't want to say it's my fear but you know there's a lot of people that say oh Toronto needs more large units right i'm like well Large units are expensive, <laughs> right? And I think at some point in time, when if we if we really cut, if we do some things to cut down on supply, the developers are going to concentrate more on the luxury side of the market because there's actually some considerable savings if you're just going after the the luxury market in terms of what you might be paying in development charges for doing. You know, but doing you know, when you when you, when you move into luxury, you know, development charges are you know a bit of an asterisk at the bottom. Yeah. You know, the the upgrades to the quality of the finish is is significant. You know, people. Yeah. Are, are expecting great finishes, you know, higher ceilings. When they look down the drywall wall for 20 feet, they expect it to be laser straight. <laughs> and, you know, you so, laugh, but that's a, so, that's so a great you're, point. You're dealing, yeah, like, you're dealing you're with a tradesman. The, they're not getting the second tier, third tier tradesman to do that. You yeah. are getting the best drywaller in North America. It has to be, right? 100%. And, and you know, I've, I've been involved in other luxury projects as a cost consultant where entire living room walls have been ripped out and restarted Wow! because somebody moved in and refused to take possession of a wall that had just had a slight wobble in it. And yeah, why not? Because they're enough. paying $6 million for the unit. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
not not to uh, to change topics too drastically, but uh, just to move to another project that you mentioned earlier on, you guys are bringing Ace Hotel to Toronto, which is exciting. I believe it's the first one ever in Toronto. First in Canada. First in Canada. Wow, super excited. So what what is just for our listeners who haven't stayed in Ace Hotel? Uh, what's the premise behind it? What are you guys? Uh, what's the vision? What's the plan? I think there's a nice going to be a rooftop bar. I don't think pool, but bar for sure. It's be, uh, yeah. Give it's, us a, and where is it? And sort of. So give us uh, the give us the pitch. We are at uh, Camden and Brandt, okay. which is essentially Spadina and Adelaide between Adelaide and Richmond, very close to our uh, five twenty Richmond Rush project. So. We are doing 125 units. The Ace brand is super cool, very artsy based. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't describe it as high luxury, but what I would describe it as a sort of very sort of mid-century modern design feel. Uh, speaking to the the interior designers from Ace, you know, they, they call it undesign, which means that when you're walking through it just feels very comfortable as if, you know, you're in sort of a, a cool sitting area. It doesn't feel like it has been designed, cool. even though it's been designed to, Over-designed. <laughs> to every inch. Uh, you know, a very pleasant place to be. So, you know, and this is no word of a lie, even though it's, every developer has probably said this. This is going to be an architectural masterpiece in the city. You know, there's a lot of... Um, very average looking glass boxes out there. Um, this design is going to be a real showstopper. So when you walk in, we have we have the, uh, interior structural archways, which I don't believe exists in Toronto. Certainly hasn't been done anywhere for probably 50 years. Cool. Designed by Shim Sutcliffe, who are, who are just incredible architects. So we have these structural hand-formed archways with board form. As soon as you walk in, we have a recessed... Um, basement um, restaurant which is going to be part of this sort of cavernous space do you know, who, do you know who the re- who's taking the restaurant space yet is it Ace or is it so Ace TBD? will run it we okay. do have a uh, very exciting chef that uh, I don't think has been announced yet but um, you'll, you'll be pretty happy when you hear about it but the actual space itself is spectacular and you know when I say it's going to be an architectural masterpiece I will stand behind that we it's so over designed um from a minimalist standpoint that it's going to be spectacular. I can't wait to be part of the team that's going to open that and have our first drink. You know, we're, we're going through the process of buying the furniture right now. And again, this stuff has been designed for years in advance. There's going to be a lot of vintage furniture. Really can't wait. Ben and I are, Really excited for our invite for the uh, opening party. Is that why I'm here? Yeah, basically I'm, the only reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that's I, might why even, I might even have a drink that. Yeah. But, uh, well, we're we're running a little long on on time, but uh, I got to ask one thing before we end. sure because because uh, Stu did tell me. Hold on, before so when is the, the launch of the hotel? Uh, I got to diarize this. It is well, we don't have a fixed date as yet. It is either going to be towards the end of this year or very early next year. We're just agreeing those opening dates because again, for for me, it's it's so interesting. You know, if you've not opened a hotel before, which very few people have done, you know, to figure out that runway of all the things that have to happen. You know, there has to be two hundred and fifteen staff have to be hired before this thing opens. You probably need some bookings too, maybe a couple of reservations, so people are going to stay in the hotel before you open. Or <laughs> you guys does that come after that? <laughs> hey, I'll stay there. You guys yeah. will have the, yeah. the, the master suite. Yeah. I'll, get, I'll get a babysitter. I'll get a babysitter. Get an extra long bed for you for the second, <laughs> yeah. second tallest real estate analyst in Canada. I, I sleep diagonal, so that's all right. Okay, so, so um, just as we wrap up, i got a couple final questions for you. Just, uh, 
you know, for the for those out there who are really interested to get to know get to know Stu. So you told me that you had a, your greatest achievement above anything else, even above potentially marrying your wife and your kids. No, not a second to that. And, and marrying my wife is my best achievement. I can imagine anyone to put up with you. <laughs> Three daughters. Uh, you married her at 24 years old. No, at 24 years old, you, you had your second biggest achievement. Something about, uh, something about something in Hong Kong. Why don't you tell us a bit about that quick? Ah, yes, the boat. Yeah, so... <laughs> As a young, innocent man, 6,000 miles from home, I, uh, for some reason, decided it would be a good idea to buy a 40-foot Chinese junk and move, move aboard. <laughs> a junk is a type of boat in Hong Kong, so it's like a 40-foot When you told boat. me that, I thought it was a typo. I bought a junk. Yeah. <laughs> you thought I was talking about junk bonds, but yeah, so I... I, I did, I thought either... I uh, knew nothing about bo- boats. I bought this boat, and it was it was parked in the middle of a bay, on a, what's called a swing mooring. So basically you come up and it's in a different direction depending on the wind. I had to buy a nine-foot boat to get out there every day. But I was king of the world. I was 24, I had a 40-foot boat, a nine-foot boat, and a 750 Honda. And that was my wow. life in Hong Kong. But, I, you know, life. the amount of times... I, and it wasn't like a nice boat like you guys. It was like camping on a wooden shack every night. <laughs> yeah. I have slept in the rain. I have had cockroaches in my hair. Uh, it was pretty gross sometimes. <laughs> You've gone, you've gone through Quite the trenches to get here, and it's uh, it's paid off. So from congratulations there to, from there to the Ace Hotel. Yeah, right exactly. Now. Congratulations on on all your success. It's been a, obviously a, a well uh, well established career to the to date, but I think there's probably a lot left in store, and we're excited to uh, see where you guys go next. And uh, I'm sure you're going to be at the uh, at the reins of Altera in no time, leading us uh, leading them to the future. So, so it, yeah, maybe you could just give us where people can find you, company website, all that fun stuff. Uh, website's easy. It's altera.com, A-L-T-E-R-R-A.com. And I am at stuartwilson at altera.com, S-T-U-A-R-T-W-I-L-S-O-N at altera.com. What about social media? Any Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Tinder? As I, as I mentioned, I am a complete Luddite. <laughs> <laughs> I, do have a, I do have a Twitter account, a Twitter account but only for uh, tr- Trolling? Che- trolling you guys. Oh, it's one of those, uh, what do they call them, burner accounts? Yeah, you're, you're that oh, guy it's that's one always those, like uh, money laundering, speculation, every single day. I'm just like, get out of here. Okay, Anyways. last time, last thing, I, I hosted a panel a, a little while ago, and Nikki, uh, who's our uh, editor and producer, uh, if you need an editor and producer for a podcast, reach out and we'll put you in touch with her. But I did uh, a 10 questions, 10 questions, 10 answers or less. You ready? This could be awkward. A little bit about Stu. Oh, my goodness. Jesus. What's your favorite non-American sport? Football. What football? The, the, the one you use your feet for. <laughs> What's your favorite American sport? Basketball. Are the Raptors going to repeat? Yeah, they're going to reach the finals, but unfortunately come up short. What's your favorite Scottish dish? Haggis. Which? We're getting a dog in two months' time, and it's going to be called Haggis. Beauty. What kind of dog? <laughs> It's going to be a mini Bernadoodle. My next question was, do you make haggis at home? But I already know the answer is yes. I do not. <laughs> Come on. Okay. Uh, you know, listen, I... I, 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 I burn my, yes. No, I don't. I burn <laughs> my toast. I don't even think it's legal to make your own haggis. <laughs> <laughs> what do you miss most about the motherland, other than the rain? The mountains. And, of course, my family. What was uh, the greatest experience about living in Hong Kong, other than the junk? Uh, the people. People were amazing to have... 
hundreds of people, all very far from home, all determined to get drunk most nights. <laughs> it was very exciting. <laughs> Do they drink Guinness in Hong Kong? They drink everything in Hong they Kong. They drink everything in Hong Kong, okay. Um, what are we going to do some bagpipe questions next? Come on, let's go on. You know, will John Tory resign after this term or, or will he run for another election because he's doing such a blank job? He should retire at the top, but I believe he's going to continue because he is very popular. Should, does Toronto need more bike lanes or subway lanes in 2020 approved? Uh, 20, uh, definitely needs more of both. We need less cars and we need more bikes. Where uh, where do you see the biggest population growth in 2020 and beyond? 416 or the 905? It's going to be 905 because we're running out of high-rise land downtown, unfortunately. And back to yourself. If there was one person who you would call a mentor or a key uh, contributor to your career, who would that be? And is there anyone you would want to acknowledge? Wow. So, But there's so many great guys. I mean, outside this room, because obviously you two are <laughs> my biggest influences, but... Uh, the former president of Hellier, John Fleming, was a huge inspiration to me. You know, very wise and kind man. Um, he was great, and I met him a couple of years ago. But, you know, I, I've had some great people I've worked with. Um, you know, all the guys I worked with at Hellier and Altus were phenomenal. I, I've been very lucky with the people that I've been working with. And, you know, I, I can't leave this without, you know, saying the same for Rob and Richard Cooper. Sure. Uh, Rob and I spend a lot of time every day together and it's, uh, it's my absolute pleasure to learn from him and the rest of the team every day. And last and final question, um, just because our audience is, is wide and vast, if you could give one piece of advice to either your younger self or the young people listening who want to get into this industry and believe that commercial development real estate is where they want to be, what would it be? Wow. One piece of advice. I wish you'd give me that question in advance. <laughs> I don't know. Probably you two are a good example of this. And, you know, I, I spoke to Ben on the way here. You know, networking is everything. And not in a kind of sleazy out there giving business cards, making genuine connections with people on the way up. I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel I met Ben probably 18 years ago. Um, you know, we were we were pretty heavy in the business development circuit, and, and I could name a dozen people that I met very early early on in this business. Is it's not about that immediate connection, it's not about that instant gratification. It's about building long term relationships with people you like and trust. And you know, I think when we got started, Ben, um, it was a very good time. We had a twenty year bull run, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I I look around at all the people I started with in different companies, and they're all still there. They're all doing well. And it's a network that we, we both rely on every day. And Steve, you, you know, you're a master business development guy. You know, it's all about connections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't be in too much of a hurry. Put the hard work in. You know, I talked about at Hellier uh, just yesterday that, you know, we were, we were working till 10 o'clock every night. And why? Because I wanted to put the hard work in. And I, I felt if I could do two days work in one day, then I was more experienced than the other guys. So Awesome. That would be my advice. That's a great answer. Well, we should end on 